Last week, the trailer for the next Spider-Man adventure was released. Spider-Man No Way Home. If you haven't seen, if you're not interested in Spider-Man, you could just, you have my permission to take a 90-second nap. If you are interested in Spider-Man, this is good stuff. Um, the, the trailer was released, and it quickly broke the record for the most global views in 24 hours. The trailer was viewed over 355 million times in a day. I won't tell you how many of those views came from my devices, but it was more than one, I assure you. Within hours of the trailer's release, in addition to the trailer, so you've got a movie trailer telling you about a movie that's going to come, you also have dozens of videos about the trailer. If you don't believe me, go to YouTube. There's, movie, there's trailers about the trailer, and, and they're telling you, you know, everything that you missed in the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer, or all the Easter eggs from the trailer, Easter egg being some sort of hidden thing in a trailer or a movie that's pointing to something else showing you all this breakdown of everything that's going to happen, and here's all these theories of what we think is going to happen in the movie based on what we saw in the trailer. And I won't tell you how many of those videos I watched either. Maybe you're saying, why in the world is he talking about movie trailers? Well, um, I'm going to be talking for the next 20 to 60 minutes <laughs> about a list of names from Matthew chapter 1. Initially, this might feel about as exciting as listening to someone read the Jerusalem phone book. Now, a lot of people didn't laugh about that because you don't know what a phone book is. <laughs> Young people, um, there's these big, big books, and just Google it. Google it, and you'll see a picture. You just, yeah. Um, Imagine reading the Jerusalem phone book, list of names. That's kind of what it feels like, at least, that we've got in Matthew chapter 1. And we come up across a text in Scripture that we believe this is God's Word. We really believe that. That's why we gather every single week. And we say, well, why that? I mean, what significance is something like that supposed to have for my life? I, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to show you that our, our text in Matthew, it's not boring. It's, it's kind of like a movie trailer filled with Easter eggs, clues about what we're going to see in the rest of the book. It's a clue-filled preview of the type of king that Jesus is going to be. So if you're not already there in your Bible... Go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you and you've got an app and you can open up your Bible app or go to Google and type in Matthew 1, verse 1, it's going to help you to be able to follow along as we go through this together. Now, as you're turning there, I want to ask a question. Why would Matthew, writing around A.D. 60, why would he find it necessary to include these details about Jesus' family tree? And you, you, you might be tempted to respond, well, you know, why wouldn't he include it? I mean, isn't that what biographies do? They tell you where people come from? Well, we need to remember the Gospels. We've got four Gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not biographies in the technical sense. 
Okay, so, so um, each of the gospel writers, what they're doing is they're, they're giving you a glimpse of the life of Jesus. They're not interested in telling you everything about Jesus, which is why other than one story, we know almost nothing about Jesus from his earliest days until he's, his ministry begins around age 30. We got one story at the temple at 12. That's it. They're not, they're not trying to tell you everything about Jesus' life. They're trying to give you a glimpse of who Jesus is. And so if you compare the four Gospels, it's, it's kind of like four camera angles at a football game. They're all showing the same events. They're all true. They're all accurate. But each is telling its own story from a slightly different perspective. I used to say it was like watching four different news channels, but they're not even sharing the same stories anymore, so we can't use that illustration. Like four camera angles at a football game. Now, this is a slight oversimplification, but think about it like this. Um, John, the Gospel of John, major point that John wants to get across is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. From beginning to end, it's a major point in John's gospel. So, notice, John doesn't have a genealogy because God doesn't have a genealogy. He's always been there. So, John begins, how? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, John begins because his aim is to give you a glimpse of Jesus as the Son of God. He doesn't start with a genealogy. Mark, the gospel of Mark, one of my favorite gospels, um, emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the suffering servant. Again, Mark doesn't give you a genealogy. Why? Because few people care about a servant's parents. The servant's genealogy isn't that important. What, what matters is what the servant does. And so when Mark tells his story about Jesus, the suffering servant, he just starts right away. Jesus is getting to work. Here's what Jesus is going to do. When Luke tells his story, Luke is trying to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the Son of Man. So, so Luke traces Jesus' lineage through Mary all the way back to Adam. Matthew has a different focus. So we're going to see over the next 10 years, however long we're studying Matthew, <laughs> as we're going to see, Jesus is the King. That's what Matthew's writing about. All, and now, that's the, not the only thing he's writing about, but a major theme throughout this gospel is that it's Jesus, the king, and here's his kingdom. And so Matthew, when he records his genealogy, he's doing so with a really specific focus. Because if you're going to claim to be a king descended from the royal line of David, you better be able to prove that you actually come from David, right? And so notice, as we'll see in just a moment, when Matthew gives this genealogy, he's tracing it through the line of Jesus' adopted daddy, Joseph. Why would he do that? Because if you're going to claim a right to the throne, it's going to come through your legal father. And so Matthew traces this genealogy through Joseph to show that Jesus is the king. This genealogy, this list of names, this Jerusalem phone book is for us, I believe, a, a clue-filled preview of the type of king that Jesus is going to be. I want to show you a summary statement of those clues, all these major clues, 
in the opening verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Five major clues from that one verse, kind of a summary of this genealogy. Number one, Jesus is a new kind of king. Jesus is a new kind of king. Now, every four years in America, we're subjected to campaign promises about a new kind of leader, one who will fix everything that the last guy ruined, right? So we've had change we can believe in. We've had make America great again. We've had restore the soul of the nation, and we'll see what we get next. If you're not ready for the next election cycle, it's coming really, really soon. Matthew presents Jesus as a new kind of king, but Matthew doesn't begin by comparing Jesus to the kings of Rome or the the long dead kings of Israel. Matthew begins by going way, way, way back to the very beginning. Let me show it to you again. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy. You see it? You say, nope. What in the world are you talking about? Well, To see what that phrase has to do with the very beginning, we need a quick language and a quick history lesson, okay? So, in Matthew's day, remember he's writing about 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. In Matthew's day, the main Bible that most people had access to is what's called the Septuagint. Uh, The Septuagint, it's a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, which was the common language of the day. It got its name from the Latin word for 70 because most people believe there were 70 people that translated this copy of the Old Testament into Greek. So Matthew, we know because all throughout his gospel, he's going to quote and allude to the Septuagint. Matthew knew this Greek version of the Old Testament, and he's going to quote it directly all throughout his gospel, including in the two first words that we just read. In the original language, that phrase, the book of the genealogy, is two words, biblos geneseos. Does that second word sound like anything to you? Biblos Geneseos. What's it sound like? Genesis. Oh, very good. You guys are awake. Great job. That phrase, Biblos Geneseos, Geneseos, it means book of origins. And it's only used two times in the Septuagint. Both times are in the book of Genesis. One in Genesis 2, where it talks about the, the beginning, the origins of the heavens and the earth. And the second in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations. Same exact words in Matthew's Old Testament, the Septuagint. This is the book of the generations, Biblos Geneseos, of Adam. When God created a man, he made him in the likeness of God. Matthew begins his gospel by drawing a contrast between Jesus, the king of kings, and Adam. In Genesis, Adam appears on the scene as a man in the likeness of God. And if you read the first two chapters of Genesis, Matthew's kind of like a king. He's he's given this perfect kingdom to rule, to subdue, to have dominion over it. And yet, if you know the story, how does Adam do? He fails miserably. Jesus comes along the scene, 
not as man in the likeness of God, but God in the likeness of man. Jesus is a new kind of king. Unlike Adam, Jesus is given a fallen kingdom with thorns and thistles and death and sin, and Jesus is going to succeed in ways we could not have even imagined. He's a new kind of king. The Apostle Paul highlights this contrast between Jesus and Adam in Romans chapter 5. Listen to this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I've told you this before, when Adam fell, it was like a mighty oak tree fell. And every single human coming from Adam, which would be every human, is like one of the branches on that oak tree. When Adam fell, all of us fell. Every single one of us. We are sinners by nature and by choice. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the consistent problem given throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that we are sinners. And yet, what Paul is telling us in Romans 5 is that Jesus is kind of a a new kind of Adam. Just as in Adam, all of us fell. In Jesus, all of us who repent and trust in him will come alive. Just as one man's disobedience brought disobedience and corruption to the entire cosmos, one man's obedience, Jesus brings life and righteousness to all who cling to him in faith. This is the good news that Christians believe. So the problem with all those campaign slogans is that they tempt us to live for too small of a king and too small of a kingdom. Jesus isn't just better than the last guy. He's better than the first guy too. And everybody in between. So Jesus is a new kind of king. A second hint in the text is Jesus is a gracious king. Jesus is a gracious king. Hands down, in my opinion, the best Disney film of all time is The Emperor's New Groove. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's so good, so good. It tells the story of a narcissistic king named Cusco who, who plans to celebrate his birthday by destroying a, a local village in order to build an extravagant summer home complete with a swimming pool. Listen, Cusco doesn't care who he hurts in the process as long as he gets what he wants in the end. The story of Emperor Cusco is funny, but it mirrors reality a lot, doesn't it? I mean, listen, history is littered with kings and rulers and emperors like Cusco who lived to get from other people. They, they viewed their, their office, their leadership as an opportunity to take When Matthew tells us Jesus is a a different kind of king, part of what he's helping us to see is that Jesus is a king who comes to his people, not to take from them, but to give. Or as Mark will tell us, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see this right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus. We sang earlier, you are worthy of your name. You wonder, what does that mean? Why, why are we singing Jesus is worthy of his name? Because of what his name means. The, the name is Yeshua, which sounds a lot like Joshua. They're the same name. And that name literally means Yahweh saves. The Lord God saves. And if, if you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, fast forward a little bit, the, the Lord tells Joseph in a dream that you're going to call Mary's baby Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as a king is going to be a gracious king who comes to save his people. That is why Jesus came. Or in John's gospel, the Son of Man didn't come to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. Jesus comes so that in him we might have life and rescue and hope and peace and joy. Now listen, this theme is not only found in verse 1, it's all over that genealogy. Think about some of the names listed here. Abraham. Abraham. Lied about his wife. Slept with a servant girl then kicked her and their baby out of his house and left them to die in the wilderness. Jacob, chronic liar, a polygamist. His family life was a nightmare. Judah had twins after sleeping with his daughter-in-law who was disguised as a prostitute. Solomon had a harem that, in comparison, would make Hugh Hefner look like a nun. So, uh, Rehoboam was a, was a fool whose pride divided an entire nation. Manasseh was an idol worshiper who sacrificed his own children to false gods. Listen, this is a who's who of some of the most despicable characters in history. Now, Jesus, Jesus identifies with them, not because he endorses their sin, but Matthew wants to make a point. Patrick Schreiner puts it this way in his book about Matthew. He says, the family from which Jesus comes reveals the family for which he comes. Listen to that again. The family that Jesus comes from is a clue about the family that Jesus is coming for. In other words, Jesus comes from a bunch of really bad, seedy people because he's coming for that kind of people too. Listen, let's not be too impressed with ourselves because of Baptist Church. One of the reasons why we confess our sins every single week is because we know we commit them every single week. We're not here because we've arrived. We're not here because we're good. We're not here because we're the smart ones. We're the ones that figured it out. We are here because we are clinging only to Christ. Christ alone. And the family that Jesus came from 
points us to the family that he's coming for. If you're in this room and you feel like you are too far gone for Jesus to save you, let me assure you with everything in my being that you, dear friend, are not. You are not too far gone. You've not gone too far. If you're here today, the sound of my voice, even now, the Spirit invites you to believe, to trust in this Jesus, to really believe that he comes as a gracious king to draw to himself the most wicked of sinners. Now, I I think this truth must have been really, really comforting for the author of this gospel you guys remember what Matthew's profession was? The tax collector. He tells us the story in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't tell Matthew Or he doesn't wait till Matthew's done collecting taxes and then he'll call him. Matthew's in the tax booth right now, praying on his own people. He's a traitor to the Jewish people. He's in cahoots with Rome. He is fleecing God's sheep. And in the middle of his sin, in the middle of it, Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. That's what Jesus does. He does not ask us to clean ourselves up first, but he comes to us in our filth, in our sin, and he says, follow me. The story continues. Matthew rose and followed Jesus, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, probably Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is a pretty sordid picture. You've got Matthew the tax collector having a party at his house with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, the seedy people of society, and there they are with Jesus. And interestingly, they're reclining. Jesus is not standing there rigid, uncomfortable. What am I going to do around all these bad people? He's reclining with them. And the Pharisees come along, and they see it, and they say to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You don't eat with people like that. When Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you're in this room and you're a sinner, If you're in this room and you find yourself sick spiritually, then this Jesus is for you. He's for you. You might find yourself this morning in the darkest place of your life. Can I tell you something? That's exactly the type of place where Jesus wants to meet you. He loves you. He's a gracious king. A third clue in our text about the kind of king Jesus will be He is the long-awaited king. Jesus is the long-awaited king. On November the 4th, 2008, Barack Obama was elected the 44th president of the United States of America. And, And for some people, this was a victory that had been hoped for and prayed for for a long time. 
after over 200 years filled with, with suffering and waiting, the United States of America finally had a black man in its highest office. The Jewish people also knew what it was like to wait for a king. But not 200 years. Thousands and thousands of years before Jesus walked the earth, God made a promise about the one who would come, this long-awaited king who would come to rescue his people. The scene is the Garden of Eden, but it's not as it was created to be. Adam and Eve have tried to cover themselves in their shame. They're pointing the finger and blaming each other. There's a serpent that's trying to get away from a holy God, and God shows up, and he speaks to his people, and he speaks words of, of, of discipline, words of even cursing. But then he speaks a promise. Listen to Genesis 3.15. God says to Adam and Eve, or to the serpent rather, he says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God promises that a snake crusher is coming. Someone's coming, a promised one, a long-awaited king will come, and the, the serpent will bite his heel, but this one to come from Eve will crush the head of the snake forever. The, the whole Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, the whole thing is pointing to this promised one, this long-awaited king that was called the Messiah. Genesis 12, verse 3, tells us that he would come from Abraham's family and would bless all the nations on earth. Genesis 49, 10, says he would come from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, says he would come from David's line. Isaiah 7.14 says he would be born of a virgin. Micah 5.2 says he would be born in Bethlehem. Deuteronomy 18.15 says he would be a, a prophet like Moses, and, and we better listen to what he had to say. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 said he would be celebrated as he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Psalm 22 says that his enemies would pierce his hands and feet and cast lots for his clothing. Isaiah 53 says that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Zechariah 12 says that God's people would look upon him that they had pierced. And in looking upon him, a fountain of life and cleansing would come to them. Isaiah 53, 9 says that he would die among the wicked and be buried with the rich. Psalm 16, verse 10 says that he would be resurrected from the grave because God would not allow his Holy One to be corrupted, to suffer decay. Now listen, that's just a handful of hundreds and hundreds of references to that long-awaited king. And Matthew shows up on the scene and he says, he's here king is here. Verse 1, again, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ, by the way, is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a title, uh, kind of like William the Conqueror or Alexander the Great. Jesus the Christ. This is his title. 
And that word Christ literally means anointed one, and it was the word that was used to refer to the Messiah. So Matthew is telling us that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Although the Jewish people didn't always understand it, when the prophets talked about this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited king, they were talking about God himself. God himself would come to his people. So listen to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah and countless other prophets are telling us that this coming Messiah would be God himself coming to his people. Matthew tells us that as well. Uh, a scene later in the gospel in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. And I've been there and seen that area. At the time, there was a, a great temple devoted to the god Pan. And this was a place that was a pagan place. It was a place that people didn't want to be. It was a place where people felt, uh, especially if you were a, a, a good, self-respecting Jew, you felt unsafe, you felt insecure. And in that place, Jesus will tell his disciples, I'm going to build my church on a rock that the gates of hell cannot overcome. But just before that, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples and he says this in Matthew 16, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, well, some say that he's John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said to them, who do you say I am? And by the way, dear friend, that is the question. Young man in this room, young, young lady in this room, it does not matter what your parents say Jesus is. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Peter looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bar just means son of, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is God. Jesus is this long-awaited king. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God himself. And that's why when you're reading through the genealogy, it's got a really predictable formula. So-and-so had so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. If you're reading King James, so-and-so had so-and-so. Until you get to verse 16. Look in your Bibles at Matthew 1, 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph. That's predictable. That's been the pattern. So-and-so, the father of who, right? And then he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ or Messiah. Matthew, even though he wants to trace Jesus' genealogy through his adopted daddy, Joseph, Matthew wants to be abundantly clear. Listen, Jesus was not born of Joseph. 
He was born of Mary. We'll learn next Sunday that, that what was conceived in her was brought about by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that's hard to believe. Listen, if you can believe that God speaks and stars appear, it's not that hard to believe. This genealogy is hinting to us that, that this Jesus, this King of Kings, is the long-awaited Messiah. God himself has come to live among his people. Let me ask you again, dear brother, sister, friend, who do you say this Jesus is? Who do you say he is? I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. People say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis then says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him at a, as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Who do you say that he is? Fourth clue in Matthew's genealogy is that Jesus is the forever king. Jesus is the forever king. Most of you know that I'm a native of central Ohio, and therefore I'm a big fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes. And uh, this Thursday night... If you want to do anything with me, just know I've got plans to watch Ohio State beat up on Minnesota Golden Gophers. Um, I've already had to reschedule a date night with my wife so I can watch this football game. And she's reminding me of that multiple times. Anyways, that's another story. I love college football, and, and I, I've been privileged, as a fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes, I've been privileged to watch them win national championships twice in my lifetime, once in 2002 and once again in 2014. By the way, that's two more than Michigan has won during that same time period. Just a reminder. When your team wins the national championship, you feel like the king of the sports world. You're, you know, at least for a few minutes, you're the boss, you're the king, you're champions. But last year, or really January of this year, after the Ohio State Buckeyes lost to Alabama, something occurred that just reminded me about the futility of college sports. Because the, 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 the confetti hadn't even fallen all the way to the ground in that stadium when someone started asking Nick Saban about next year. 
right? So, so you're king for a few minutes, but really quickly, your crown is gone, and we're moving on to the next guy, because very few people remember who won the crown 18 years ago, or 18 months ago, for that matter. Jesus is so different. Jesus is a forever king. In, in football, the futility of, of those crowns that don't last for very long, it's really a picture of every power, every world king. Presidents come and go. Empires come and fall. But Matthew comes on the scene and he says, this king, this Jesus is going to be king forever. We're going to see that throughout the gospel, but he gives you a clue in Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. That's significant. Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of David almost twice as much as as all the other gospels put together. He alludes to David even more. Why? Who was the greatest king in Israel's history? It was David the man after God's own heart. We've already talked about some of David's failings. David failed miserably. And yet, there was no point in Israel's history where God's people were more united and more faithful in their worship of God than under King David. He was the ultimate king. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this imagery of of David returning. There's going to be a king, David. He's coming back, the forever king. Because God himself made a promise to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you remember the story. David wants to build a house for the Lord. He says, I've got this beautiful palace. Let me build a house for you, Lord. And God says, no, David, I'm going to build a house for you. And listen to what God says to David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, it's a fancy way of saying when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times, We're told that the son of David will be a forever king. And Matthew comes on the scene, and at the very first verse of his gospel, he says Jesus is that forever king. He's the son of David. We get a few more glimpses of this at the end of the genealogy. If you go down to verse 17, Matthew tells us all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, a lot of people look at that verse and they say, aha, you can't trust the Bible. The Bible can't be trusted because there's more than 14 generations in some of those gaps. In fact, if you read Luke's gospel, in some of these uh, periods, there's more than 14 generations What is Matthew doing? He's not telling you there's only 14 generations. He's highlighting 14 significant ones. Why? Because uh, the the Jewish people in Matthew's day practiced something called gematria. And essentially, it's a numeric code, and you, you assign a number to each letter of the alphabet, and then the number for a word is the sum total of all the letters. If I lost you at all, let me give you an illustration. The word dad 
okay? D, what letter of the alphabet is that? A, B, C, D. We've got to use our fingers here to get it right. D, so that's four. A, what letter of the alphabet is that? One, oh, very good. That's five. Four plus one is five, but there's one more letter, D, D-A-D, which is also A, four. So what's the total? What's the numeric code for the word dad? Wow, is that right? Four plus four is one. Nine, very good. Someone did is that you, Seth? Good job, man. I was thinking it was 11 for a second. Good job. All right. So nine is the code for dad. Guess what number is the code in Gematria, according to the Hebrew alphabet, for the word David? Anybody got a guess? 14. Hey, very good. So Matthew is hardwiring into his genealogy a clue that's saying, David, David, David is here. He actually does it one more time because he divides this story of Israel into four phases. There's Abraham, there's David, there's exile, and then the final phase is Jesus. And there's not a phase after that because Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and none will follow him. He's the forever king. Now, what does this have to do with your life right now? You are going to live for a king, and you're going to live for a kingdom. You might not call him king. You might not call it a kingdom, but that's what it is. You're going to live for something. The only question is, how, how long will that king keep his crown? You can live your life in pursuit of football, and you might feel good every now and then when your t team wins, and then it's all over, and the, the crown is gone. You can live for the crown of work or pleasure or money or fame or power, but you will never find a crown big enough, glorious enough, satisfying enough to make you truly and finally happy. Matthew comes along and says to us, Jesus is that king. He's the king worth living for. He's the king that will lead and love and serve forever. One final clue in Matthew's gospel about the type of king that Jesus will be. Jesus is a global king. Jesus is a global king. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When Matthew says Jesus is the son of Abraham, on the one hand, he's showing us that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham, that he's a Jew, but Matthew's also doing something more. Matthew wants us to see, he wants us to be reminded of God's plan for Abraham. Do you remember when God called Abraham, when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees? Abraham, he says to him, listen, if you follow me and, and me, or in you rather, all the, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Listen to Genesis 12. God says, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 22, and in you, the, the promise is repeated. It says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God's plan through Abraham, through the Jewish people, was to be a blessing to the nations. 
But Israel repeatedly failed. The story of the Old Testament is a story of repeatedly falling into sin, crying out to God for mercy, being rescued, and then in their time of prosperity, falling again. So how in the world is, are the people of Israel going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world? The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, Paul wants us to know that the, the offspring of Abraham that's going to bless the nations is, is referring to one person. Listen to Galatians 3, verse 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, the Messiah. Paul is telling us, listen, when God promised to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. God was looking to the day when Christ would come as the son of Abraham, the global king. Again, I think there's clues of this littered throughout the genealogy. One of the things that people often comment on when they study this passage is the four women mentioned in this genealogy. Well, that's very interesting because in genealogies of that day, it would not be common to mention the women, but Matthew is very careful and clear to mention these four ladies. In verse 3, there's Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. Verse 5, Ruth. And verse 6, although she's not named, the wife of Uriah is mentioned. Now, what unites these four women? There's lots of different theories uh, we know that uh, several of these women had pretty sordid pasts. Of course, uh, Tamar, or Tamar, we know that she dressed up like a prostitute to sedu seduce her own father-in-law. We know that Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Bathsheba was taken by David, and through Bathsheba came Solomon. Could be that, although Ruth is kind of the outlier, isn't she? Because we have no evidence that, that Ruth was promiscuous or, or anything like that. Another theory, I think probably the, the more accurate uh, theory, is that these women were probably all Gentiles, all of them. Um, we know Rahab was a Canaanite from Jericho. We know that Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba, we're not certain, but she was married to a Hittite. Uriah, which suggests that she was probably a Hittite herself. And Tamar, we're, again, we're not certain, the Bible doesn't explicitly say, but we do know that Judah married a Canaanite woman, so it makes sense that he would have given his son a Canaanite wife as well. So it seems as if Matthew is highlighting four Gentile women, outcasts, people that would not be accepted, people that the king would turn away. And yet, not this king. Once again, the people that Jesus come from reveal the people that he comes for. Listen to me, brother, sister, friend. There is no outcast too far gone for King Jesus. He is a global king. And at the end of, his gospel, of this gospel, Jesus will say in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, this is our Jesus. He's the king of all nations. He's a king for all nations. He has a heart for people from all over, over the globe. Jesus cares about those suffering in Afghanistan. He cares about those suffering in Haiti. He cares about those suffering in Louisiana. He cares about those suffering the world over. And as a result, as an extension of that, we as his people should care about them too. And our mission is to go and to spread the good news of this kingdom all over the globe until every, every person has heard the good news of this Jesus. This genealogy is a clue-filled preview of the type of king that Jesus will be. He's a new kind of king. He's a gracious king. He's a long-awaited king. He's a forever king. He's a global king. Now, I've seen lots of movie trailers through the years. Many of them were awesome, but the movie didn't quite live up to the hype. The trailer was better than the movie. Now listen, I'm not going to say anything about the effectiveness of this preacher. But listen to me. Regardless of how effective I've been in showing you this king, he lives up to the hype. He lives up to it. He is all of this and more. Listen to me. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I would invite you to make it a mission, a personal mission over the next few weeks or so to read the book of Matthew. Read it and see if these things are true. Is he really this sort of king? Is he really that good? Can the stories really be true? I assure you that they are. And I would invite you, Christian, in this room to Devote yourself over however long we're studying this book together to get to know this king so that you can spread the good news of this kingdom to those who do not yet know him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God, we pray that we would love him well, that we would serve him well, that we would tell others the good news about this king. Lord, we thank you that we are not saved or kept by our ability to share this good news or communicate this good news. We thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price for us, that in your graciousness you died for us, that in your power you rose from the dead. Help us to leave here with a new and renewed vision to make this king known. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me as we sing.